Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly with me, Gideon Rachman. Today we look at the territorial struggle over the islands known as the Senkaku to the Japanese and the Diyayu to the Chinese. This dispute took on a new and more dangerous aspect with China's declaration of an air identification defence zone around the islands, a move that's disputed by both Japan and the United States, which is pledged to defend Japan through the US-Japan Security Treaty. In one chilling episode, the Americans dispatched two B-52 bombers through the new Chinese defence zone. But then the US also announced that it's instructing its civilian airlines to respect the zone. So who's coming out on top in this war of nerves, and just how dangerous is it? Joining me on the line from Beijing is our China bureau chief, Jamil Andalini, and on the line from Washington is Jeff Dyer, our correspondent there, who's about to publish a book called Contest of the Century, about the rivalry between the US and China. Jeff, first of all, how concerned should we be that these disputes could actually lead to some sort of conflict? Well, it definitely ratchets up the risks another degree. I mean, there already was a lot of tension, a lot of posturing around in the seas around the Sinkaku Diyu Islands over the last year in particular. And this now elevates it up into the skies as well. It does leave the potential that if Japanese military aircraft were to enter into this airspace, that the Chinese aircraft would try and buzz them, there'd be a lot of potential for miscalculation for accidents. The kind of incident that could then quickly escalate into something else. Now, we shouldn't overstate the risks. It's not by any means inevitable that there will be any kind of conflict here, but it does elevate the possibility of something going wrong, of some sort of incident becoming much more dramatic, another degree, substantially higher, in fact. So, Jamil, why have the Chinese done it? Were they consciously taking a risk, and why did they think it's worth it? I think they feel that by doing this, they're taking a calculated risk, but they think they'll be able to effectively change the status quo in the region. They've thought about this for a long time. They figured that they could do this and there wasn't that much that Japan or its main ally, the US, could really do about it. And if you look at the area that we're talking about that China announced this air defense identification zone over, it includes these disputed islands. The best claim that Japan has to these islands is the fact that it's actually pretty much administered them since 1895. So the Chinese want to establish a precedent of them being able to say, well, we've administered them for a certain amount of time. And by declaring this zone, they've forced commercial airlines to tell their flight plans to Beijing authorities every time they fly through the zone, which is a tacit acknowledgement that this territory belongs to China. So in five years, ten years, the Chinese will be able to say, well, for five or ten years, all these countries and all these airlines have agreed that this belongs to us. And that's the plan here. They don't want to escalate it. They don't want to start a war, clearly. I mean, it would be disastrous for China, especially at this stage in its development, for it to to enter any sort of armed conflict with Japan, the US, or anyone else, probably. But 
they're looking at the long game and they think that this will strengthen their claim to this territory over the long term. Well, very interesting. And I've been following, obviously, what you've both been writing in the FT about this. And I must say, I noticed a slight difference of opinion. It seemed to me, Jamil, that you think the Chinese have basically got a slight edge in this war of nerves. But, Jeff, you've been writing that you think the Chinese have overplayed their hands. So let's explore that disagreement. Jeff, why do you think the Chinese have got it wrong? It's not that they don't have an upper hand in this narrow sense of the conflict, but it's more a case of what are the ultimate goals here. If the broader game plan of the Chinese is to try and divide Japan away from the rest of the region, to isolate Japan, and then also more broadly to try and push the U.S. further back out into the Western Pacific to undermine the military naval dominance that the U.S. has enjoyed for 60 years in the Western Pacific. Now, those are understandable goals that any aspiring great power would have. But the way it's going about doing it seems to be to be very contradictory for China. It's uniting a lot of other Asian countries against China. It's irritating not just Japan, but it's infuriated South Korea in this particular incident, and the Philippines as well. And it's pushing those countries more closer to the U.S. And then more broadly, one wonders Chinese would like ultimately to have a stronger leadership position in China. But what is that actually going to mean if in the process they've created this deep-seated enmity with Japan, which is still the second biggest economy in the region and still be a very powerful player in the region. It doesn't seem to me that there's a great long-term payoff to China if in the process of creating all these facts on the ground and changing the status quo, if they turn all these other countries against them and make them deeply suspicious of any of Chinese long-term motives. Jamil, what do you think? Do you agree with that? Or do you think the Chinese are playing an intelligent long game? Sorry, I'm afraid I'll have to disappoint you and agree almost entirely with Jeff. I think that actually they think they've won some great victory in the Short term for sure, but I think in the long term they absolutely are uniting the region against them. They're alienating most of their neighbors, and long term it's probably not going to serve in their interest. In the short term, they've done a very clever tactical little move, but in the medium long term, it's probably going to work against their interests. And as we've talked about, it really heightens the chance of an accidental conflict breaking up. But, Jeff, is it that clear that the Chinese have won? Because it seems to me American actions are rather ambiguous. Initially, you had this very strong pushback with the sending of the B-52s through the zone. But now the Americans are saying, well, actually, the civilian aircraft will respect the zone in the sense of reporting to the Chinese. So in this kind of war of nerves over whether America is actually acknowledging this or whether, on the contrary, it's pushing back. What signal do you think has been sent and what's been received? Well, I think at the moment it's something of a drive. Definitely are mixed signals from the U.S., as you say. The military has said we're not going to respect this, but for safety reasons, the U.S. government has said we want our commercial airliners to respect it because the last thing they want is for any kind of threat to the safety of commercial air traffic. And so that has left them in a confused position that has definitely upset the Japanese. But then the Chinese have also prevaricated a bit. The initial announcements seemed quite bullish, almost quite aggressive. Some of the comments since then have indicated that Chinese might be willing to modulate in some way the ways in which they're going to enforce this zone. So I think both sides, if you like, are just looking very carefully to see how they're going to apply this. They don't necessarily want to escalate it too much more. They're trying to find maybe a way to back down a little bit without either side losing too much faith. And Jamil, Vice President Joe Biden has now been to both Tokyo and Beijing do you think his visit has helped to calm things down at all? Possibly. I don't think he got a very welcome reception in Japan. They were clearly angry and upset by the fact that the US had encouraged civilian aircraft 
to agree to the Chinese conditions and to file their flight plans when they're flying through this zone because Japanese airlines initially complied with the Chinese demands and then under pressure from the Japanese government, they stopped filing their plans only to find a few days later that the Americans had told their airlines to go ahead and file flight plans with the Chinese. So the Japanese feel a little bit hung out to dry and then Biden had to come here to Beijing and to send a forceful message, but not too forceful. And he stopped short of calling for the Chinese to actually abolish this new zone. And instead, he seems to be asking the Chinese not to enforce it too rigorously. He's been saying publicly very strongly that we've been very forceful, but at the same time, his statements don't sound that forceful. And now he's off to South Korea, where he's trying to get the South Koreans and the Japanese to work together more closely. And the South Koreans have very deep mistrust of the Japanese. So he's shuttling between these three countries where everyone is almost at each other's throats at the moment. So this difficult trip. And he looked a little tired, I have to say, when we saw him today. OK, well, just to wrap it up then, it seems that we're all agreed that nobody wants a conflict and that there's no reason that there should necessarily be a conflict. And yet I guess the thing that worries me sitting here in London is that there's also no obvious way this is going to de-escalate. So the longer it goes on, surely the risk of an accident, just by the law of averages, has to be there and to increase. Or is there some end game that I haven't spotted? How do you think this is all going to end, I suppose, is my question. Jeff, first. Well, I think the other thing that the US is trying to do this week, and Joe Biden is trying to do this week, is to get both countries to talk about having much better communication between the militaries. So during the Cold War, there were precisely these kinds of naval and air exercises and chicken between the U.S. military and the Soviet military and other U.S. allies. But there also were these different hotlines between the militaries where they could discuss with each other, and if there were incidents, they could exchange information and just find out what the intentions of the other side were. None of that currently exists between Japan and China. And that's one of the reasons why these kinds of incidents of fighter jets from China are buzzing Japanese fighter jets. That's why these incidents could quickly escalate Neither side really understands what the other side is doing. But one of the things the U.S. is doing to try and take some of the poison out of the situation is to set up these kinds of communication channels that can at least allow you to reduce the risk of an escalation from one of these small incidents. Jamil, finally, do you think that kind of thing is going to work and this will just be a tense situation, but one that's ultimately manageable? There are serious hurdles for both sides, Japan and China, even to talk about setting up these military-to-military hotlines. But ultimately, that has to be what happens. Neither side wants an accidental collision to force them into an outright armed conflict. But I think what's going on for all three sides, if you think of Japan, US and China, basically, I think at this point, they want to just calm it down, get it out of the headlines. And at all three sides, the Chinese feel they've scored a point and they just want to leave it at that. The Japanese want to calm it down so they're not forced into testing the Chinese. And the US probably more than anyone, wants it all to go away so the U.S. administration can go back to dealing with all the other things that it has to deal with at the moment. So I think that pretty much on all three sides, they want to just ignore it. If they could, they would let it all die down and go away. Well, we'll see over the next few months whether that strategy of trying to get it to die down and go away actually works or not. But for the moment, Jamil Andalini in Beijing and Jeff Dyer in Washington, thank you both very much. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.